Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Carabake. And I'm Will, your other host. Let's talk about money. Nikki from Portland wrote in saying, My partner and I have a personal finance question. We've been debating on what to do with our emergency fund money. We have a savings for six months of expenses, which is $20,000. Currently, that money is sitting in a joint checking account at our primary banking institution. We don't know if it's better to keep it there, readily accessible, but not earning much, or to put it into another type of account. I've browsed money market accounts at Vanguard, looking for ones that come close to earning the rate of inflation, which is about 2%, right? I understand money market accounts are fairly liquid and generally low risk, but I've never had one, so I don't know much about them. Can you offer any thoughts on the matter? Hey, Nikki. First of all, awesome that you've managed to save $20,000 for your emergency fund. That's rad. Um, Your initial inclination towards money market accounts hits the money right on the nose. Uh, Money markets are a type of investing account that is generally low risk because they are what's called FDIC insured, um, which essentially means that the government says that they will, you know, get you back your money if for some reason the bank collapses. But they also provide a slightly better return on a regular savings account. Um, They have some of the benefits typical of both a savings and a checking account. So they're kind of in between. They can offer a higher interest rate because they have often a higher minimum balance. Um, So like quite often checking accounts, the minimum balance is like $50 or something like that Mm -hmm. month to month. Quite often, they're a lot higher for money market accounts. And they usually have restrictions on how much you can withdraw per year. So this is actually a great place to stash an emergency fund. Um, The thing about money market accounts, though, compared to like a checking account is they give you a very limited amount of check writing ability. So there's federal regulations that limit check writing ability on money markets, but also on savings accounts. So if you end up writing a bunch of checks out of your savings account, say for like a medical crisis where you've got a bunch of checks, you could end up getting hit with fees and an incredibly scary letter. This happened to me when I was like 18 because Uh I had my savings account as the overdraft account for my checking account and we had this crazy thing at the grocery store where i worked it was called pay by touch where you paid with your um fingerprint which is so many levels of creepy um and i had to sell people on it all the time doing it by face these days we got creepy yeah i know it's gotten this was pre-smartphones um and my pay by touch would go into my overdraft on my savings account and that happened like three times in a year which is more than the number of checks you can write and mm-hmm. every time an overdraft is pulled it counted as a check um because that's kind of how the bank sees oh, it oh yeah yeah um so you know the great part is i wasn't getting hit with overdraft fees but i ended up getting hit with the like you are not following federal regulations for check writing from your savings account so I never made that mistake again. So that's one thing to know about money market accounts. I think I did a similar thing, only they, the bank, I think it was Bank of America was with then, converted my savings account into a checkings account. That is quite common too. Sometimes they'll just automatically try to protect you because um, actually they're the ones that get in trouble, not really you. Um, uh, and they'll, they'll try to protect themselves by converting it into a checking account. Huh. So there's a few things. So obviously for an emergency fund, hopefully you won't be writing a lot of checks from it. You just want a place for it to sit, that it's safe, but that you could also access in the case of an emergency. 
Um, There's a few things to look for when shopping around for a money market account, the interest rate it provides. Unfortunately, you were saying you're looking for 2%. Right now, they're usually hovering between 0.11 to 0.5% APR, which is annual percentage rate, uh, which is how much you would get in a year of having that money in there. That's simply because interest rates are so low right now. So money markets, when I first got my first money market when I was 18 and the economy was doing really well, they were closer to 3 to 5% APR per year. Um, the minimum APR is? Uh, annual percentage rate, which essentially okay, means interest. how much interest you get in a year. Yeah. Um, so it's you know averaged out over the course of a year how much um, interest you would get. So the minimum balance to open is another thing you want to look for. Um, at some, like regular institutions, it can often be 5000 or 10000 that you need minimum to open a money market account. But for some of the online banks, they'll go as low as a dollar. So mm. you would just look around and make sure you know what it is. And last but not least, look at the fine print for the minimum monthly balance. Often you're going to owe a fee if you dip below something like 500 per month. Ideally, this isn't your checking account. This is just where your emergency fund is, but you should know that. Um, Since this is a joint account with your partner, please make sure that both you and your partner have check writing ability and have names on the account. Um, Not only is it really important if one of you has a uh, medical emergency and you need to pull money out and one of the person on the account is the person in the crash or the accident, it's really important to be able to actually be able to access that money if one of you is disabled or um, you know, it, not cognizant enough. But I've also seen far too many people have the contents of joint checking accounts disappear off the face of the earth on a breakup because only one person was listed on the account. So just protect both yourself by having both of you on the account. Um, one alternative to a money market account um, is a CD ladder. And those are what people used to store their music collections on. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if that helps your mental image of them, just rem- remember those. Uh, CD ladders take some strategy, but they can yield a bit more than where money markets are right now. CDs are certificates of deposit, um, and they are bank accounts that are totally locked for a pre-approved portion of time, but they give you a guaranteed rate of return. So the money markets don't always guarantee what the APR is. They can go up and down month to month. Oh, because you said that was an average. Yeah, yeah, that's your average. Um, It depends on the account, but... um, but a CD are considered super low risk because they're FDIC insured, which means the government will make sure you get your money back. Um, but your money is totally locked up. So, for example, if you get what's called a six-month CD, you couldn't touch the money without paying a penalty for six months, but you might earn as much as 1.5% interest on that money at the end of that six-month period. Usually you can get to the money, but you'll pay a penalty that's usually greater than the amount that you would earn off of it to access that early. Gotcha. So if you really needed it in a big emergency, you could yeah, get it. Yeah, it's not totally locked up. You're just going to pay a penalty. Um, the longer the CD's term is, which is how long the money is locked up for, and the larger the amount of money you put in it, the higher your rates are. Okay, that makes sense. So the traditional kind of like safe savings thing was to just re-renew a CD year after year, like maybe get a one-year CD and then re-renew it, reinvest it. So you've got the option each year you could yeah. move it or pull it. Yeah, you uh-huh. could put it in your checking at the end or you could just re-renew it and put a new CD on, um, which is especially great if rates are going up for you. However, you can also do what's called a CD ladder, and this can be a good way to strategize with, um, especially if, you know, 
in the case of an emergency fund, usually you want it more liquid, but it can work really well if you've got like $20,000 sitting around that maybe you want to use on a down payment in like two years. And you know you're not going to be buying a house until two years from now and you want to earn a little bit off that money, but it's uh, you need it too short term to invest it, for example, in the stock market. So the way a traditional CD ladder model works is that you divide your investment evenly over five CDs with one CD maturing each year. So if you had $20,000 to invest, you could spread out your money like this, $4,000 in a one-year CD, $4,000 in a two-year CD, $4,000 in a three-year CD, $4,000 in a four-year CD, and $4,000 in a five-year CD. Oh, okay. So you're getting the different interest rates and making some of it more accessible, huh? Yeah. And so after your one-year CD matures, you can reinvest that money in a new five-year CD, or you could drop that money market into your money market account or your savings account. CD ladders are not my favorite at this exact moment, simply because they aren't yielding a ton more than money markets and they're less flexible than a money market. So I don't think they're the best place to put your emergency fund, but it is one other option. Yeah, no, and that's good to know about. Um, Last but not least, if you might use your emergency fund for medical expenses, for example, one of you has a dangerous hobby like cliff diving, or maybe you're trying to get pregnant, you you might want to consider socking some of that emergency fund away in a health savings account which we've talked about on previous episodes. And that's simply because you get some really great tax advantages with the health savings account. And I suppose a lot of emergencies would be applicable to your health savings account. Because we are American, (laughs) (laughs) uh, a lot of emergencies are health. If you're just doing this as a supplement, if one of you loses your job or something and you don't really, you have great health insurance right now or something like that, and you really don't think healthcare is going to be one of your big expenses because you're not planning on procreating and you don't do a lot of base jumping, Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. um, it might not be the best place but it is an option. Um, A very basic macroeconomics lesson for you, since you asked about inflation. Inflation's for U.S. dollars right now, so you know, is about 1.8% a year. And generally, when interest rates are high, like they were pre-recession, usually the economy is expanding. And when the economy is doing great, inflation is usually high because the government is printing money to pay for things. Every time we, what is called expand the monetary supply, that makes interest go up. So if you've been following Zimbabwe, that's been having hyperinflation, which means that inflation is crazy. Mm -hmm. People are literally taking wheelbarrows of money to pay for groceries because the value of their currency is so low. I did that at New Seasons yesterday. (laughs) I really hope you took a wheelbarrow full of cash to pay for your groceries. I did, and I just got some bok choy. uh... (laughs) Um, Well, in, in hyperinflation, what's happening is the inflation is going up so high that sometimes people get their paychecks at noon because the value of their money will have decreased by 5 p.m. Wow. Um, And uh, essentially, the only solution to hyperinflation is to stop printing money. But when you stop printing money, the economy starts contracting and and it sucks. Deflation's bad, too. So uh, should I be concerned that my money that's hypothetically in a money market account is... Uh, maturing at a lower rate than inflation? Mm, I mean, should you be concerned? Yeah, maybe in like an existential sense, but don't worry about it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I guess we're talking about 1%, but it um, still sounds like it's it's I, withering. I want you to have some money available liquid for emergencies more than I want you to freak out about a possible slight loss in inflation, right? So because the alternative would be to put all of your money in the market and have nothing available liquid and... 
as we saw the past couple of days, the the economy has the stock market has taken a huge dive. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I wouldn't want you to have that be your emergency fund and then end up in this position where you try to take money out and it's lost 20 percent. Right. Which so, is better than the one percent potentially from inflation. I yes. see. Cool. All right. C from Oregon wrote in. I have been a nanny for a few years, living paycheck to paycheck. After saving this year, I have a steady balance of $4,000 in checking and have opened a savings account. I just got a letter saying that I had defaulted on my student loans, have been in the state of, oh, I should deal with that forever. And I believe I have an outstanding balance with my alma mater that was never covered by the loans. I don't even know where to start. Who do I call? How do I tackle this? Oh, see, first thing is to take a breath. (laughs) Uh, I could kind of hear the panic rising at the end of that. Um, You can totally recover from defaulting on student loans, especially if it's early in the process. If you've just gotten that letter that it's your first default, um, then, you know, early in the process, it's pretty easy to recover. The first thing you need to do is get a handle on what and who you owe, um, who your loan providers even are, which can be actually one of the hardest parts about this process. The way loans work in the U.S. is that quite often they are split up between a bunch of different providers and you have a bunch of different people you owe money to, even though you you know, just got one check for financial aid when you were, when you were in college. Mm-hmm. So for your federal loans, meaning non-private ones, the best place to go is the National Student Loan Data System, NSLDS. You need to know your FSA ID, which is the thing you log in to FAFSA with. If it's been a FAFSA, oh, I about FAFSA. <laughs> if it's been a couple years since you've been in college, you might not remember your FSA. Um, it's really important that you figure it out, though, because it's what you use to access all the various government websites that show you your student loans. If you don't remember it or you can't find it, you might be able to find it just by searching your email, depending on how long ago you went to college. You can reset it at studentaid.ed.gov. Or you can call 1-800-4-FED-AID and they'll walk you through resetting it. Um, it's possible you may actually have to get like a letter sent to your house if you never like verified your mobile phone with them, just to add to the complication of this. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the NSLDS does not have data on older loans. So for example, ones borrowed in the 1980s or something. Um, It also doesn't list medical and nursing school or private loans. So if you have loans in one of those three categories that are still in repayment, you're going to have to locate them by looking at your credit report. Right, because often student loans are are both federal and private loans. Yes, Um, especially if you went to a school that didn't necessarily have really good need-based aid, Mm -hmm. then it's possible that you had to take out some private loans. Um, Or if you went to med school, um, simply because they're not what are called Title IV loans, nursing and medical school loans, and they're a separate kind of loan. So even though they might be federal loans, they're in a different camp, so they're not not on... Covered by the the National Student Loan Data System. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, So the way to to look at your credit report is to get a free credit credit report from the three main credit reporting agencies, which are Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. And you are entitled to three per year um, by visiting annualcreditreport.com. Go to that actual website. Don't Google it because there's a lot of scam websites out there. Um, You can also use a free service like creditkarma.com, creditsesame.com, or wallethub.com. There's a couple of them. Those are three of them to look at a prettier version of your report. Um, I'm like trained in reading credit reports, and they're still really ugly <laughs> and hard to understand. Um, so I recommend ordering your actual credit report, but also using one of these easier-to-look-at websites. 
Um, what I don't want you to do, though, is to focus on your score because all of those websites will show you your score. And if you're defaulted on your loans, it's quite likely that your score isn't very good. But I just want you to focus on the fact finding. <laughs> don't worry about the score. That's not important right now. We're trying to get you out of default. So once you have a list of all of your loans, you can log into studentloans.gov and use the repayment plan estimator to see what the different repayment options you have are. What you can figure out is what is affordable to you. Since you're a nanny, it's likely your income is variable month to month. So see if you can get a repayment amount that's affordable on your lowest earning months. So, you know, if you have some months you earn 4000 and some months you own 2000 make sure that you'd be able to make the payment even on a low in earning month. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. So there's a bunch of different repayment options, but first what you're going to have to do is um, do what's called rehabilitating a defaulted loan. And this will help repair your credit history, but it will also make you eligible for all the other repayment options. So you will have to call your loan provider. Um, it's possibly a collection agency, dependent on how defaulted you are or if it's a private loan, in order to get your loan and rehabilitation. For federal loans, you have a lot of rights around rehabilitation, so just know that going in. Just go in with this strength of knowing that there's actually like a lot of mandated rights that you have to rehabilitate the loan. To qualify for loan rehabilitation for most loans, you need to make nine monthly payments within 20 days of the due date, during a period of 10 consecutive months. The 9 out of 10 rule, as it's called, uh, basically allows you to miss your payment one month, but still be eligible for rehabilitation. Um, Perkins loans, if you got those, um, you need to actually make 9 out of 9 payments on time. So there's no grace payment um, in there in order to qualify for rehabilitation. And once you've done those 9 out of 10 or those 9 out of 9 payments, then you will be what's called rehabilitated. And essentially, you start back. One, your credit history will show some repair. So mm -hmm. your score will increase usually. Not that that's the goal, but it will. N not, that <laughs> not that that's the goal, but it's a, it's a nice way to track it, yeah. to just looking at it as long as you can take some shame <laughs> out of the process. Um, and But what's really exciting about it is we'll let you go into other repayment options. Um, one really important thing to note is that I'm going to walk you through different repayment types for student loans, um, but your rehabil rehabilitation amount will not be, you won't be able to choose the re these repayment plans. What they're going to do is calculate um, based on what is called the IBR number, which is 15% of your discretionary income. And what does IBR stand for? Income-based repayment. I and you're going to hear this a lot. It's very close to IBS, but it's not. <laughs> um so th just know that like it's essentially they're going to have a number that they consider affordable to you, which is usually 15% of what they consider your discretionary income. Mm -hmm. um, but the way to kind of figure out going into the call what they're going to ask of you is you can still go onto that studentloans.gov website and look through the repayment calculator. And that will, if you look up what is called the IBR payment, then that will be a general estimate of what you're probably going to need to pay. Um, if you are getting your wages garnished already, so um, you're a nanny, if anybody else is listening to this has an actual W-2 employer, then it's possible the loans will catch up with you with loan garnishment. Unfortunately, what sucks about the loan garnishment is you need to pick, make those garnishment payments as well as the rehabilitation payments in order to rehabilitate oh, your wow. student loans. So you're kind of paying double until they rehabilitate You're kind them? of paying double. However, you need to let them know that you're getting your wages garnished and they will reduce the amount of discretionary income so that 
uh, rehabilitation amount will be lower. Does that okay, make sense? Yeah, that's, so that's, you're that's... only going to pay 15% of the amount you're paying after the garnishment. Um, obviously, this all sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, once you get to the garnishment point, it's not fun for anyone. Um, but if you are in a rehabilitation process and you're also getting garnished, uh, if you make five of your rehabilitation payments and also have five garnishments um, and you've done everything in, in good faith and done it on time, then you often can stop the garnishment. If that makes sense, and then that makes make, lots of sense. Yeah, make huh. adjustments. Essentially, they want to see that you're trying to work on it and get a, ahead of it. And then, quite often, there's a lot of grace built into them. Student loans suck, but they are one of the most flexible uh, types of debt that you can have. Short of like medical debt directly with hospitals, which usually you can be like, I would like to keep this in good standing, and I will pay you ten dollars a month. Right. <laughs> um, but student They're not loans be quite that lenient. Yeah, but... student loans have a lot of flexibility built into them. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying that student debt is awesome, but um, at least it's flexible. So here's the different repayment plans. The standard plan is what you usually will be automatically enrolled enrolled in, and they are the cheapest over time, but the highest monthly payment. For many folks that are starting out repaying their loans and are early in their career, this is an infeasible number. Like, it's just impossible. Um, so one other option is graduated. In graduated, your monthly payments increase every single two years. So essentially, you'll start out with a lower payment, and then you'll be paying a lot more towards the end. Um, it will cost a little more over time than the standard plan, um, but you'll have the same repayment timeline. What I don't like about this and don't recommend about this is it's not based on income. So you might not be making more in two years, but your payment is still going right, to go up. Right, it's just going up at a linear rate or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Huh. What's, uh, is there any advantage to that over the standard plan? It's just, um, if it happens to work out Well, it keeps your, your payments career? low in the beginning. but So it's helpful, uh, yeah. it's helpful over the standard plan. However, the one that I recommend and that most people um, do, it, it is really good if you want or need the lowest monthly payment because you're low income, you want income-driven repayment plans. Um, there's two kinds of these. The most common is income-based repayment, or IBR, usually for short, and pay-as-you-earn, which is P-A-Y-E, pay. Um, you can enroll in income-driven repayment plans even if you're unemployed, and it's based on your income. So if you're making $0 monthly when you're unemployed, um, you can make $0 payments on your monthly payments and they still count as a payment. So they And they'll keep you in good standing, which is excellent, right? So this is a really good option if you're low income. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. Generally is the options. IBR is what you need to be enrolled in for public service loan forgiveness, which we've talked about on previous episodes. Mm -hmm. um, it's under threat right now. It's very possible that it's going to go away. No, and <laughs> the first people to ever qualify for it, because you have to make 10 years of IBR payments on qualified loans, um, at just qualified in October. Oh, yeah, because that was an early, yeah. Yeah, it was a very early Obama mm -hmm. um, thing. So anyway, uh, the IBR is helpful because it could qualify you for public service loan forgiveness. However, I don't want you to bet on public service loan forgiveness because it's a complicated program. Not a lot of people actually end up qualifying for it, and it might go away anyway. Right. <laughs> um, the way to figure out what balance you owe to like either your school or a private provider is to call up the bursar's office at your alma mater and ask for your records. Um, you might get forwarded to financial aid or you might find out that you've actually been sent to collections and they don't have anything to do with it anymore. In which case, please find out the number for the collections agency, like ask them. Um, 
from a emotional recommendation, the best way to approach this is like a detective. Be cool and detached. Try to take the shame out of the equation. I know that's easier said than done. But just look at this like you're just trying to figure out who and what you owe money to. And because it's very possible you might have to make a lot of soul-sucking calls. <laughs> um, it seems likely, yeah. Yeah, and, and it... It's possible it might only be one, though. You may only have to call up the bursars, and it turns out like they still hold the debt, and it's really easy. Um, you know, try to build in something nice into the routine of making these calls, because I suspect that you'll have to set up like up to like six hours aside for calls over the next like month to kind of get out of this. So just you know, have nice tea or something for yourself, uh, yeah. and get really used to like waiting on hold. Maybe a cat in the room. <laughs> um, so. Just try to find out what the number is, though. That's your goal. So you need to keep asking about payment plans. Either the collection agency or alma mater. Just keep repeating payment plans. <laughs> right, until you figure out who's got and, it and who will Yeah, and who will happen. make a deal with you. So if you owe, for example, $2,000, ask them if you could pay it back over 12 months or 24 months. Just keep asking for a payment plan. Whatever payment plan you do get, get it in writing. And you also want to make sure that it's going to be reported as positive history on your credit report because you want to start building back up the fact that you're getting control of this again. Right, and paying those down. Yeah. But get it in writing because you don't want it to change. Say, for example, a new person is in financial aid at your school. You don't want it to change and then you to end up back in default or sent to a new collection agency. So don't stop until you can get something you afford can afford too. If they keep trying to tell you an unreasonable number, just keep saying, mm, that doesn't work for me. Let's find a different number. So um, you're going to have to be persistent, which is why I recommend the cat and the tea. The cat and the tea, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that's really important to both prevent default again and saving you money is that quite a few lenders offer you a 0.25% discount on your interest rate if you sign up for automatic payments. So do it. Yep. Just yep. do it. <laughs> that makes sense. 0.25 adds up quickly. Over yeah, your totally. Loan of that time period and that size. Um, that's you know the equivalent to what you're going to make on a money market account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these days, Bad so inflation. <laughs> don't don't underestimate the power of that. Um, and even if you don't get a discount, it's still worth doing. Just have those automatic payments set up, um, and you know hopefully keep a budget so that you don't overspend. Yeah. And I have the money there, but yeah, that's pretty much it. I know that default on student loans can be really, really stressful for people. I've had some people in my class before that like didn't want to check their credit report because they were afraid by checking it, it was going to let the federal government know where they live and then they were going to get in trouble because <laughs> they had defaulted. Um, but really, the only way to get at it, so you can't even get rid of student loans in bankruptcy. The only way to like see through your student loans is to pay them off. And the first step in paying them off is to like call and talk someone and get yourself rehabilitated on yeah. them. And that's easier than faking your death and living a life as an expatriate. Yeah, right. Which is like, those are your other options. Yeah. So. And we'll we don't give advice on that on the show. No, we are not going to talk about you know faking your own death on the Oh My Dollar show. So yeah, I th those are those are the basics with student loans. You're gonna have to spend a lot of time on the phone. I'm sorry. Happens. Yeah. <laughs> I think that wraps our show for today. I think you're right. <laughs> our producer is Will Romy, and our intro music is by Aaron Parecki. I'm Lillian Kerbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. Oh My Dollar is still a weekly podcast, so you don't need to wake up at 7.30 a.m. to hear the show. Check us out on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review. 